Before we read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. I pray now, Father, that uh, you would open this word up to us to encourage us and to challenge us, but most of all, to glorify Jesus. Uh, And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would rest on me, that I can bring your word to your people boldly and faithfully through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Just to, just to mention, this is going to be the, the last uh, of the series of the excellencies of Christ. Uh, when we're back from uh, the States, I had something completely different planned uh, for, for the Advent season. And uh, this past week, the Lord just really pressed upon me uh, verses that have to do with time and the fullness of time. And so uh, beginning in December, we're going to be looking at some key things that the Lord is saying And you know, we've been praying and believing that God is going to pour out His Spirit in a new great awakening. And that is coming. Uh, I am more confident of its coming. I don't know the timing of it. But I think we're in that season right now where uh, uh, it's kind of like before a woman gives birth. uh, The due date has come, but you don't know exactly when the baby's going to come out. Uh, And so I think we're in the fullness of time that any time now... Uh, God could pour out his spirit. And I'm, I think we're seeing little contractions and things happen. Uh, but we're looking for that. And this next series is going to be really focused in on that, uh, believing for that and saying what, a little bit of what we can expect and what the Lord is saying about the time that we're in. So that will begin in December. But for now, let's turn to Second Peter chapter 1, just verse 16. Peter's writing here and he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's a great verse. And then over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll start with verse 1. Therefore... Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then to chapter 10. Interestingly, this uh, passage in chapter 10 is also one of the primary passages for Sunday Focus this afternoon because we'll be talking about strongholds as part of the the new discipleship course. But we'll begin, pick up in uh, verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, 
I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, our theme really this, these last few weeks has been that verse from 1 Peter, actually chapter 2, where Peter tells us that we are God's people, we're a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation designed to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why we exist. You know, a lot of people will say, well, we exist uh, to convert the world. Actually, we don't. God does the converting stuff. We don't do that. Some will say, well, we, can, we exist to convict the world of sin. Well, no, that's the Holy Spirit's job. We don't do that. Some people say, well, we, we exist to evangelize. And certainly that's something very, very important that we, we're supposed to do. We're, we're supposed to declare the good news about Jesus Christ. Some say, well, we're supposed to make disciples. Yes, indeed, we are supposed to make disciples. I mean, that's the Great Commission. Uh, God certainly is there. But one of the things that wraps all of these things together and flows throughout all of these things is that we exist to declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ. We make disciples so that more and more people will see how amazing Jesus is that they will see the glory of Jesus and the wonder of Jesus. We we evangelize, we declare good news so that people will come into a relationship with Jesus and come into a relationship with the Father and they'll see how amazing Jesus really is. And one day we have confidence that Jesus will come again and reveal his glory in all of its fullness, that we really will see Jesus and that everybody will see the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And this is part of our reason for being as as the body of Christ. And it's something we can't do by ourselves. It's something we need to be together to do because it's not one of us that reflects all the excellencies of Jesus, but all of us together, like a diamond that has different facets, all of us together as Jesus shines in us and shines through us, his glory is reflected, his amazingness is reflected, his his excellencies are reflected throughout the world and throughout the universe, not only to people, but also to principalities and powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that's God's desire and God's challenge to us and God's desire for us to declare the excellencies of Jesus. And we've been looking at those excellencies. But our temptation is, many, many times, and you see this all around, our temptation is in, in some ways, to, to augment, to want to augment or add to the excellencies of Christ. You know, so we think, you know, people will get the excellencies of Christ if perhaps I can add some special effects to it. 
You know, so, so if we could, if we could do a kind of a sermon and, and there's explosions around us and, and, and glitter that kind of comes down from the sky and everything like that. And if we've got the right lights and, and maybe do a really cool video on all of this, that somehow people are going to get it a little bit better. Uh, and then there are some people who think, well, you know, I don't know. Jesus, he needs a little help. You know, he needs, he needs to be, uh, he needs me to be more creative. Uh, he needs me to develop a better website. You know, if I've got a better website, then people will see the excellencies of Christ. I don't know how Jesus did it before the internet was invented. Uh, and then some, sometimes we say, well, you know, Jesus, you know, he needs a little bit of help. You know, we need to airbrush him a little bit. You know, so the idea that Jesus would say, well, you know, I, I do not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Okay, well, let's just take that out, you know. Because that might offend somebody. Uh, or, you know, Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Well, maybe we could take the, the repent part out. And if we take that out, then, then it's going to be more appealing to people. And we think that this is new, but it's not really new at all. Because if you look, you know, Peter, what did he say there in 2 Peter chapter 1? He said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we declared to you Jesus. In other words, they didn't make up a story to sound better than it actually was. They didn't make up the story to, to, to airbrush out all of the, the, the problems that there might have been. Uh, if you're going to airbrush out the story of Jesus, you certainly, one of the big things you would have taken out in that day was the cross. Because the cross was an embarrassment to people. The cross was an embarrassment. And so a lot of people are just like, well, let's not emphasize the cross. Let's, em em let's emphasize the resurrection. That's good. But that's what a lot of people do today. They want to take the cross out and emphasize the resurrection. But Peter says, we didn't, we didn't follow these cleverly devised tales, but we were eyewitnesses of the glory and majesty of Jesus. We saw it for ourselves, and that's what we're telling you about. And Paul, in the, the first passage, excuse me, pardon me about that, Paul, in that first part of, that we read from 2 Corinthians, you know, he says, we are not going to practice underhanded ways. We are not going to try to, 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 to give it you know, our best shot and, and, and do, do our best illustrations and, and maybe have you know, 752 verses of just as I am. You know, because finally people will say, okay, just stop the music, please. I'll come to Jesus. We're not going to do anything like that, Paul says. We are just going to tell it like it is. We are just going to proclaim Jesus as he really is. We're not going to doctor it up. We're not going to think that somehow, if we refine it a little bit more, if we help God improve his message, if we get the right advertising campaign together, that somehow then everybody who didn't come to Jesus is going to start coming to Jesus. Because Paul realizes that the people who aren't coming to Jesus, it's not because you don't have the right advertising campaign. It's not because you're not doing the right music in the church service. It's not because you don't have all the pastors looking as good as I do. I just had to make sure you were listening. 
It's not because you get, you know, the right people up in front, the right mix. Uh, it's not because you get the right ethnic mix together. It's not because you have the right voice. It's not any of those things. Because if somebody's not coming to Jesus, it's simply because their minds have been blinded. Their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world that's Satan. And it's going to take God to lift off the veil. It's not going to come off simply because we preach hard enough, we're loud enough, we use the right music, we use the right technique, we use the right website, we use the right advertising, or whatever you want to put in there. And every generation, by the way, has had the right thing that they thought that they needed to do. It's not just the modern generation. Every generation has thought that they have the right thing. Instead, Jesus doesn't need our help. The excellencies of Christ for anybody who dares to look at him quickly become self-evident. For anybody who dares to gaze at the reality of who Jesus was and the reality of what he did, you can see the glories of his excellencies. You can see his amazing character. You can see that he's gracious and he's merciful, that he's steadfast, that he's true, that he's patient. You can see all of these wonderful characteristics. And they're all together in Jesus. And in the end, you can see what kind of is the theme a bit of today. You can see the glory of Jesus. Because all of these characteristics together point to a, a Jesus who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is fully God and fully human, who is truly glorious. Said in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. That's all the fullness of God. Everything that is God, every characteristic of God, all of his goodness and his glory and his grandeur and, and, and his love and his mercy, all of that is in Jesus in all of its fullness. Every bit. So that when we look at Jesus, we're seeing God. If God was going to try to reveal himself to us today and he revealed himself to us in all of his glory, we'd die. That's what he told Moses. He said, hey, you can't see my glory because nobody can see my glory and live. But I'll let you see behind me. But in Jesus, we do see all the glory of God. We do see all the majesty of God. Everything that is God is represented fully in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, fully God and fully human. And out of his sonship, he reflects God's majesty. And out of his humanity, he allows us to see who God really is. And so we serve a Lord who genuinely is glorious. He's glorious and people have seen his glory throughout history. They saw his glory in the Mount of Transfiguration, which is what Peter was talking about there in 2 Peter chapter 1. They saw his glory in his resurrection. They saw his glory in his ascension. And one day we'll see his glory in his coming again. And his glory is all of these wonderful, majestic characteristics brought in together in one person that is Jesus. And we look forward to the day to see that glory revealed. And that glory, as we reflect that glory as we resemble that glory, that glory is what penetrates the veil that's on 
the minds of unbelievers. The glory of Jesus Christ penetrates the darkness. The glory of Jesus Christ shines forth. And we must not do anything that would detract from the glory of Jesus. But our lives must be oriented toward magnifying the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's part of the reason we live. I'm always captivated by this notion of how excellent and worthy and wonderful Jesus truly is. And certainly he is the only one deserving of our worship. He's the only one deserving of our trust. He's the only one deserving of our lives. And he's the only one really, really, really that we must remember because of all of that. Because of all of that. And that's extraordinary and it's amazing. But one of the things that also really captivates me is, in a sense, the contrasts that are there. The idea that Jesus is fully God, yet fully like us. He was like us in every single way, except he didn't sin. And this contrast, this, this tension that's there is really extraordinary. And it's extraordinary when you begin to think about not only the glory of Jesus, but also the gentleness of Jesus. And this is, our, this is our temptation. A lot of times when we want to talk with one another, when we want to talk with people outside the church, when we want to convince one another, we tend to appeal to the glory because we, when we look at the glory of Jesus and we're appealing to the glory of Jesus, it's like we want to appeal from a place of strength. We want to appeal from a place of power. We want to appeal from the place of majesty. We want to appeal and say, don't you see that Jesus really is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And you should come to him because if you don't come to him, he's going to squash you like a miserable insect that you really are. And we're tempted to do something like that and take that kind of attitude about Jesus and about God. Because somehow we really want people to have what we have. We want them to experience the glory of Jesus. We want them to reflect the glory of Jesus. We want Jesus to receive all the glory that he's due. And this passion animates us and can drive us on, drive us forward. But sometimes it can drive us in places we shouldn't really be going. Sorry about that again. And we could do that. And there will be a day, guaranteed, there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day's coming. That day's coming. There will come a day when God and Jesus... Out of, out of glory, will have to remove everything that hinders his love, everything that hinders his justice, his righteousness. Do you know it's not loving continually to allow those things that hinder love to stay. And so the day will come when God removes all of that, when Jesus takes all of that away, when he comes again. But in the meantime, we have the gentleness of Jesus Christ. Notice Paul here in, in later on in chapter 10. He's, uh, Corinth was a real troublesome bunch of people. Did you know that? If you read First and Second Corinthians, these people were really 
I mean, you talk about a bad church. You got to wonder about these people. I mean, the rich were taking advantage of the poor. Uh, the people who could get there early were not saving enough of the Lord's Supper for the people who got there late. Uh, they were arguing, you know, some people say, well, I'm more spiritual than you because I'm speaking, speaking in tongues. Uh, and some people, well, you know, I don't speak in tongues, but boy, I got the gift of prophecy. And we all know, you know, prophecy is much better than tongues. Uh, and then there were people saying, well, you know, I'm an apostle. Uh, that, that, that trumps everybody, you know. Uh, and then there's some saying, well, you know, I'm following Paul. And the others say, I, I follow Peter. Well, you know, I'm following Apollos. And then you got the people who say, well, you know, I follow Jesus. I'm a little bit better. I mean, this is a messed up bunch of people. And they were so messed up that if you read letters in early church history, so this is after all the apostles have died, you know, 40, 50 years later, they're still a messed up bunch of people. There's still people that have to write them and say, can't you guys get your act together? And so if there was any group of people that needed a super apostle to come in and sort them out, it was the guys in Corinth. You know, what, what, almost what they needed was somebody to come in, you know, like the ancient gunslingers, you know. I'm going to sort out this town, and I'm going to clean you all up. I, I, I'm going to take out the riffraff, and I'm going to shoot those that don't listen to me. Uh, and, and there were actually some apostles that were kind of trying to do that. And by the way, they didn't make anything any better. And so this is a messed up bunch of people. And, and, and Paul, you know, he could have come in there and said, listen, I'm an apostle, and now I'm going to strike several of you dead. Sorry. You know, and zapped a few people, and they're gone, and, and that's history. I mean, that, that happened. Everybody knew. Ananias and Sapphira in Jerusalem, I mean, that's what happened to them. Uh, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they died. Uh, you lie, you die. Uh, that's a good reason not to lie. Uh, and so you, you got that kind of thing. And Paul is there, and so he should have come in and said, okay, guys, I'm the apostle here. I planted this church. I led most of you to Jesus. I tried to put things in order, but I am the apostle. And so you must do what I say. He could have done that, but that's not what he did. Look at that verse there in chapter 10. He says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Those two words, uh, they're actually close, almost synonyms. Uh, they could also be translated as, I entreat you by the gentleness and kindness of Jesus. It's the same idea. Gentleness and kindness. You realize Jesus is gentle and kind. Now here, he's King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He could smite all the wrongdoers. But he's not that way. Jesus is gentle and kind. And he entreats the Corinthians by the gentleness and kindness of Jesus. Now notice here, Jesus is not nice. There's a lot of people that like to think Jesus is being nice. Jesus wasn't nice. Uh, he said to the Pharisees, who were the really good church people. I mean, the Pharisees were the guys that came to church dressed very nicely. They tithed. They memorized the Bible. And he said, hey, you guys, you're whitewashed tombs. 
I don't know, I've never had somebody call me a whitewashed tomb, but I imagine if they did, it wouldn't feel nice. Jesus was not nice. Uh, and I, I, I really, it's, a, it's an unbiblical word, nice. Jesus wasn't nice, not at all. He told it like it was. He always told the truth. He always did what the Father told him to do. No, so Jesus is not nice. Another thing that a lot of people say about God, you know, God's a gentleman. You actually don't get that anywhere in the Bible. It's a, it's a nice sentiment. You know, some people say, well, the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. Jesus is a gentleman. God is a gentleman. No, he's not. God is God, and God can do whatever he wants to do. And he does often do whatever he wants to do. I remember a comedian used to say back oh, about 40 years ago, not quite 40 years, maybe 30 years ago, uh, there was this comedian who would say, you know, God can do whatever he wants to with me. If he wants to strip me naked, paint me blue, and hang me upside down out of a tree, he can do that. Of course, I might ask him for identification first. No, but, but that's the way it is. God can do anything. There, there are times when God will say, you know, it's going to be, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. There are times when God says, I want you to do this whether or not you want to do it. And you can be like Jonah and think I can hop on a boat and go have a nice uh, cruise to the Caribbean, but very soon you'll end up in the belly of a fish spit out up on, on, on a beach somewhere. So the idea that God is a gentleman, that God is nice, uh, and many other things that we like to put to God uh, are not true at all. And a lot of times we like to use these things because if somebody is nice, do you know what you can do? I guarantee you every nice person in the world, you can do one thing to them, and that's control them. Every nice person you can control. Almost every gentleman in the world you can control. God, you can't. And we like to put all these labels on God that makes God easy for us to control, that allows us to say, okay, God, I'm going to serve you on my terms and not serve you on your terms, and all of these kinds of things. We can put that on, but those aren't true of God. But two characteristics that are true of Jesus is that Jesus is gentle and kind. Jesus is gentle and kind. That means that as Jesus interacts in our lives... He will always do the kindest and most gentle thing with us. Now sometimes, do you know, if you're going to set somebody's bone, uh, say the bone is broken and it's a severe fracture, uh, sometimes that gentleness doesn't feel too good. But it's kinder and more gentle to pull that bone into place and set it than it is to leave it and let it fester. But Jesus always does only as much as is required because he, we call him the great physician, and he really is in that sense. And so we need to understand that Jesus is glorious. He is the Son of God. And yet at the same time, he never uses that power as the Son of God in a way that is abusive, that is, that is punishing, that is, that is uh, intentionally hurtful or harmful, if you will. Uh, but he uses that. He uses who he is as gentle and kind. And he calls us to be the same. Even as we reflect the glory of God in Jesus Christ, we also reflect it with gentleness and kindness. And those two characteristics are in Jesus. 
And though there might seem to be intention, they never are. And those characteristics are in us as the people of Jesus. We have the glory of Jesus who shines forth from us. The glory of Jesus shines in us individually and corporately. And because we are carriers of that glory, we are called to carry it and to minister it and to serve other people as gentle and kind as Jesus is with us. And it's not the harshness of Jesus. It's not the power of Jesus that leads people to repentance. Paul tells us it's the kindness. Don't you know it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance? And the day when Jesus comes again, and he comes again in power, that's the day when he comes again in judgment. That's the day when he by force makes all the wrong things right. We want the kindness and gentleness of Jesus manifested to us and we want to reflect that to other people. Knowing that as we reflect the glory of Jesus and the gentleness of Jesus, we are pointing people to the excellencies of Jesus. The world is crying out for a church that will manifest and declare all of the excellencies of Jesus. His love, his mercy, his faithfulness, his steadfastness, and also his gentleness as well as his glory. May we become those people as we gaze on Jesus and begin to reflect who he is. Father God, I thank you so much for all that you've done in and through us to the glory and honor of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us that mandate of our existence to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Jesus, as you send us forth in this place, I pray that you empower us to reflect both your glory and your gentleness. And Jesus, as we worship you today, as we gaze on your face in worship, I pray that you transform us piece by piece, bit by bit, moment by moment, more and more into your glorious image. That as we live our lives, we live it reflecting your excellencies to a world who needs to see the real Jesus We love you, we praise you, we worship and adore you. And thank you for this time together, in Jesus' name, amen.